Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood, beside, stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet." and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. We won't be able to take the time to go to that passage, but I've been giving a lot of thought just to what I said at the end of that prayer, that the Hebrew writer says, we have a anchor of our souls, a sure and steadfast hope, which goes beyond the veil. That is, after Christ had made atonement, he was resurrected, and then he ascended and went to the Father's right hand and stayed there. He, he had the right to sit down on that throne, and that is exactly what we're celebrating today. And that becomes for us the defining reality 
for how we navigate the storms of life. It is not just that we have the Holy Spirit inside us, but we recognize that that Spirit was given because the Christ went to receive that Spirit from the Father and pour it upon his disciples. And so I am very excited to examine these scriptures with you this morning. I want to look at three particular points of doctrine from these passages. First is the sending of the Spirit, which is done by Jesus Christ. That it is the promise of the Father. The Father is the one who grants it to the Son, and the Son then sends it upon his disciples. I want to look at the Spirit's enlightening work that Paul prays for as the central aim of his desire for these Ephesian Christians, these saints at Ephesus, that they would understand what the Spirit is communicating to them and the power that he has for them. And interestingly, the New Testament shows us that this is the same power which raised Christ from the dead. That is where Paul is going. He wants you to understand the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not given to create exciting worship times alone. What a wonderful time of worship we had. Good job, saints, in celebrating what's worth celebrating. But at the same time, the Holy Spirit is not warm fuzzies. He does not come to encourage us in an emotional way or in a moving of our hearts in a flighty sense or in a circumstantial sense. But he is supposed to be the source of energy, the power by which the Christian life is carried out. The Christian life is impossible, and therefore it takes the God who does the impossible to walk it out. And then I want to look finally at Christ's present and active reign. Christ is not waiting to inaugurate the kingdom at the end of the age. He has inaugurated that kingdom. That kingdom has spread throughout the whole world and is spreading. And we have been invited into participating in the spreading of that kingdom by laying our lives down, which is what the Holy Spirit is given for us to do. The Holy Spirit is given for us, as Jesus tells his disciples, so that they would be witnesses. And the word witness in the text is the word where we get martyr. It's the same thing. And so, as we look at the impossibility of, as we saw last week, laying down one's life for one's neighbor, we have to have the Holy Spirit. It is not something we can manufacture ourselves. So today is a wonderful day because the ascension of Jesus Christ is the capstone on his work on the earth. It is, it is the graduation, if you wish, saying a, a seal of the Father as he takes up the Son into heaven and the, the Son as he ascends. It is complete. The work that he accomplished on the earth is complete, and now he is sending the Spirit to continue that very same work in his disciples. And so, uh, just at, at the onset, I, I want to encourage you, Ascension is probably, of all the high Christian holidays in our culture, Ascension is probably the most neglected. And I think that's for one or two reasons. One reason would be that we have truncated the gospel to dying and going to heaven versus dying and going to hell. And because we have truncated the gospel, therefore we've divorced it from the sending of the Spirit who encourages obedience and power today. And because Jesus ascends to send the Spirit, we've neglected the Spirit and we've neglected the day of ascension because we've divorced the gospel from sanctification and obedience and walking out our faith. Uh, When I say we, I am saying the sins of the American church as a corpus, as a people, as our culture. Uh, I'm not saying we here at GCF. And so, but at the same time, we cannot presume that we are not affected by those uh, emphases of doctrine, which I believe are, are twisting doctrine. And so, uh, even as we seek to recover the value of ascension, know that we are doing hard work. The ground is, the ground is hard in this area of the faith in, in our practice. And so, it is important for us to, as Paul said, to ask for the Spirit to open up our eyes. And not our physical eyes, but the eyes of our heart, that we would be able to know what we've been given in the Holy Spirit. So I would just encourage you as you go forth from today and you think about, dwell on, think to yourself from time to time, the risen and exalted Christ is sitting at the Father's hand and he's there and he's going to stay there until the kingdom is fully 
finished and culminated in the second coming. And he is not just sitting there, as it were, playing ping pong, or as Andy mentioned earlier in the Sunday school hours, drinking a mint julep. Our Lord is doing something, and that what he's doing is he is ruling and reigning over time and history, and he's also praying for you. If you are a saint, the ascension of Jesus Christ is the exaltation of the Father's approval on the Son and his exaltation to a place of not only authority, but also the privilege to be able to pray directly to the Father for the sake of his saints. What a wonderful thing, what a wonderful comfort in the moment of trial and temptation that my Lord has not only died for me, he's not only defeated death for me, but he ascended and is praying for me now continuing today. So that's what we mean when we say the present and active reign of Jesus Christ. So 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus gives his disciples a set of instructions to wait in the city of Jerusalem because he's going to send the Holy Spirit upon them. They do not understand what he's saying, but they are ready for the next part of his plan to be unfolded. We know that they, most of them, were baptized in water, probably through the baptism of John. And Jesus connects the baptism of John to the baptism of the Spirit. They've been washed in water. They have been washed, as we saw a few weeks ago in John 15, by the word of Christ. The gospel has cleansed them, but they have not been baptized by the Spirit as of yet. They must receive the Spirit And so this baptism of the Spirit is a wonderful gift. It is called the gracious promise of the Father. It's important to understand that whenever we use the word grace, you can also think of it as a gift. When we talk about the scriptures, which are a means of God's grace, it's a gift of God. It is a gift for you, and yet to receive a gift, you have to open it. Having a Bible on your shelf will not translate into Christian maturity. You have to pick it off the shelf, dust it off a little bit, and open it up, take hold of it, and use it. And so this wonderful promise of the Father is a gift from heaven to the disciples who are on the earth. And this begins to envelop us in what Jesus is desiring, that as he taught his disciples, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it's done in heaven. The Spirit is given to do the will of God in the saints of God on the earth. And so he says in Acts 1 verse 4, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And look how he connects this to baptism. You heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It's a very interesting thing when you start to tease out what Jesus is implying here. John's baptism, there's a controversy in, the, in Matthew 21. Jesus asks the uh, Pharisees as they're squabbling and fighting over who Jesus is and what his authority is. He says, I'll tell you where I get my authority to do these signs if you tell me the answer to this question. Was John's baptism from heaven or was it from the earth? Was it from men? And they then reveal, Matthew reveals in his writing the thoughts and intentions of the Pharisees. And they say, well, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why didn't we receive it? But if we say from men, the the people will stone us because the people understood that John's baptism was from heaven. And so we would be uttering blasphemy if we said the work of John and renewing the people of Israel was not of God. And so the Pharisees say, we don't know. Well, they really did know. They didn't want to repent. They didn't want to acknowledge their guilt and not coming to John's baptism, not recognizing they needed to be washed. And so Jesus says, just as John baptized with water, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit who is given to you is a gift of heaven to, in a sense, terraform the wild planet that needs to become more like earth than it is. And what I mean by that is the culture and state of man on the earth is a wilderness of thorns which exists in the heart. And God is giving the Spirit like the rains of heaven to come and water his people and to make them transform from a desert into a spring. And we see this in the life of the disciples. Peter 
denies the Lord Jesus Christ. And then after the sending of the Spirit, stands up in the same city which had killed Jesus Christ just six weeks or so earlier. And he declares to them, you killed our God in the flesh in Jesus Christ. And so God is giving the Spirit to do these things. Just as important as water baptism is, so also is a understanding and a receiving of the Holy Spirit for walking out Christian maturity. Christ not only prophesies that he will send the Spirit, but in so doing, he testifies of his worthiness to receive the Spirit from the Father. Peter, in his Pentecost Day sermon, stands up and says that Jesus, having received the promise of the Father, has then sent the promise of the Father. And we begin to see what Jesus Christ is doing as the head of his church. He is the head and the forerunner of his people. What I mean by forerunner is as Jesus Christ is the head of his people, he experiences what they need to experience on their behalf because they could not handle it. This is done in his death and his resurrection. This is done in his active obedience. This is also done in his ascension and receiving of the Spirit so that he could grant the Spirit to his disciples. Verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Notice what they're asking for here. He says, you're going to receive a promise of the Father. And the promise of the Father encompasses all of the promises of God throughout the entire Old Covenant. And then they ask him, will you establish or reestablish, restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? What do they mean by that? Well, the promises given to Israel through David was that David's house, David's line, would never lack a man to sit on the throne. And the throne of David that they considered to be important was the throne in the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus understands that they do not fully comprehend what he's saying to them. Because he's saying to them, I'm going to go take a seat in the heavenly throne. You're asking a, a, a political question about establishing and repairing the national covenant with Israel, and I'm taking this covenant and expanding it to all of the nations. I'm not going to sit in Jerusalem. I'm going to sit in the heavens, and I'm going to reign by my spirit in my people. Graciously, the Lord Jesus Christ does not strongly rebuke them, but rather, he just says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father has fixed. They understood the restoration of the Davidic kingdom to be their eschatology. So today in, in the American culture, we have perverse forms of eschatology which say, the Lord's going to come back and he's going to destroy everything by fire and everyone who does not know the Lord on that day will be destroyed and it will be kind of like nuclear Armageddon. This is the vision for the, re the return of Jesus Christ. That would be today's eschatology. Now, I do believe everyone who is not in Christ on that day is not going to be spared, but the, the progress of the kingdom is the issue in that form of eschatology, which I believe to be deficient. Basically, it says this, that the nations will not come to Christ and that the Spirit has selected just a few nations and the gospel has not spread to all the nations. And it's going to happen within a few decades. Just know if anyone is ever providing a prediction of when the end of time will be, they are not understanding what Jesus says in this verse. It is not for you to understand the times and the seasons. And so just as, as a bare minimum, we have to understand, okay, Jesus wants us as disciples not to be focused when everything's going to be fulfilled. We need to be doing the business that he gave us to do which is to go out into the world and be his witnesses, as he said in the Great Commission and here in Acts 1. Our job is not to know the times and the seasons. Our job is simply to be faithful in our spheres that we've been given today. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Here's a, just a very interesting question. Did any of the disciples make it to the end of the earth? Yes and no. The, the New Testament tells us, Paul says, your faith which has gone out into all the world 
we know that the first generation of Christians did not make it to South America, the tip of Africa. We haven't even sent any churches to Antarctica yet. We, we have work to be done. What, what I'm saying is, Christians naturally take the Great Commission and they instantly translate it to applying to you today. But when we take the, gospel, or the book of Acts, many Christians have a deep hesitancy to say that these commands that Jesus gave to the apostles that day have any bearing for us. You see, we use a different standard of applying the word, and I would say that Jesus is encouraging all of his disciples. By putting to the end of the earth, he is saying there is a great work to be done. It is not a small thing which the Holy Spirit is going to do through the church. The Holy Spirit is going to do this work in all ages with his people. Perplexed, the disciples fail to comprehend at all what Jesus is telling them. They are thinking a political restoration which will happen immediately as he is the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, no, I am going to go to the heavens and I am going to send the Spirit to reign on my behalf in my people. As their Lord and King, Jesus Christ ascends to receive the kingdom on their behalf. Daniel has this prophecy in Daniel 7. He says that I saw the Ancient of Days, and one came up to the Ancient of Days, and he received a kingdom. But then Daniel is a little bit perplexed, and he asks one of the people who are there in the throne room, and he says, tell me what is going on here. And the the angel purportedly, the angel says to him, that it will be the disciples or the children who receive that kingdom. Do you see how this head and body thing is beginning to work? Jesus goes up to the heavens as a forerunner and head. For that kingdom to grow within the earth, these disciples must become martyrs in the same way, witnesses in the same way that Jesus was. In John 12, Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it cannot bear much fruit. It's a very interesting picture of what you've signed up to be as a disciple. And many of us, when we come to Christ initially, we don't think about these things. And yet, as we engage with the scriptures throughout our lives, we see just how fully and wonderfully united we are supposed to be to Christ. Not just in a theoretical sense or an abstract theological sense, but we are supposed to be united to Christ in imitating his manner of obedience. And only that can be done by the Holy Spirit. Knowing the height of this calling, that, that the disciples are supposed to emulate and imitate the Lord Jesus by the Spirit, Paul then prays for the Ephesians, saying he's asking the Father to grant them the Holy Spirit. His letter to the Ephesians reveals his heart for growth by the Spirit. I've accidentally capitalized that H. I'm not intending to blaspheme there. Paul's unceasing thanksgiving and petition on their behalf is highly reminiscent of what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing. When I mean that you are called to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm trying to say that Paul, even as he's asking for the disciples of Christ to know what they've been granted by the Spirit, he himself is behaving like Jesus. What has Jesus gone to do? He's gone to sit on the throne, and he's there to pray. As the book of Hebrews says, that Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him, for he always lives to make intercession for them. I was reading a number of quotes by a Puritan theologian that I deeply love, Robert Murray Machane, and his list of quotes is so long and wonderful that we couldn't ever probably read them all. Uh, Many of these Puritan, I have a book on my shelf at home, William Gurnall, The Christian in Complete Armor. It's over 1,400 pages, and uh, I don't think I'll ever read it. It's more of a reference manual than it is a book you read from cover to cover. Nevertheless, Robert Murray Machane was so so deeply devoted to understanding the present reign of Christ. It was a major focus of him. He he wrote a number of books. One of the quotes that really struck my heart was, and I, I have to paraphrase it here, was that um, the Puritan English is a little too hard for me to quote or, or even read sometimes. But he said, if I could hear the Lord Jesus Christ praying for me in the room next door, I am sure that I would be delivered from thousands and millions of fears. 
Nevertheless, he is praying for me. The distance does not matter. This idea that for Meshane, the active, present reign and, and intercession of Jesus Christ for him became for him a foundation for how did he navigate through the sorrows and fears and anxieties of life. He called to mind the reality of the risen Christ praying for him. Verse 15, for this reason, because they've been called to be saints, as he explained earlier in the letter, because they are saints, I, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And instantly we might meditate on this just for a, a quick moment and say, if Paul can give unceasing thanks for us, ought not the Lord himself also be able to give thanks? This delivers us from terrible feelings of unworthiness and rejection. The Lord Jesus Christ did not go to the cross scornfully for you, but he right now is not only asking the Father. It's not a perverse form of intercession where he's saying to the Father, look at these terrible disciples. No, he's constantly giving thanks to the Father for the disciples. He's constantly looking at his Father and he's saying, thank you for my inheritance which is the saints, as Paul says in just a moment. He's giving thanks and making petitions for us. And Paul is imitating. Paul has reflected upon this and is therefore imitating it in his walk with these disciples. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. You see, if we do not know who God is, what he's done for us in Jesus Christ, we will have no spiritual resource to call upon in the moment of temptation, in the moment of need. If we do not know both in our hearts and in our, hearts and in our minds what Jesus Christ has purchased for us in granting us the Holy Spirit, we will not draw upon the Spirit. We will not call upon God in the moment of need. And so Paul is saying, I'm asking that God would send the Spirit because if he doesn't send the Spirit, you cannot know these things. This is the difficulty with gospel preaching. This is also the difficulty with gospel hearing is sometimes we listen to information, but as we've seen, the Hebrew writer says that just with the, as with the Israelites, they had the gospel or the good news preached to them just as we did, but they were not united by faith with what they were hearing. And so we have to be the sorts of people who recognize without the Holy Spirit, I cannot know what God has done for me. It is the Spirit who accomplishes not only justification, not only regeneration, not only causing us to come to new life, He also causes us to be sanctified and to be, to be filled with light, to be enlightened. Paul's prayer reveals a wonderful aspect of the Father's gift in this regard because in the context of the history of his letter to the Ephesians, he had already ministered to them the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's a wonderful passage in Acts 19 where Paul shows up at the city of Ephesus and they had only received the baptism of John. They did so because this man named Apollos saw what John was doing and by God's grace and plan, he was going throughout the Greek Hellenistic world and spreading the baptism of John to the nations. It's a wonderful thing, but if you, it's, it's probably hard for you to understand why they hadn't received the good news of the gospel. But in those days, news traveled by the speed of the carrier. And so Apollos left before Christ was even crucified or resurrected. He was not in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit was given. Apollos just simply went out and began to preach the good news. Just as John was sent to Israel to prepare the way for the Lord, Apollos was sent by God to prepare the way for the apostles who were bringing the message of the Lord. And so when Paul gets to Ephesus, the first thing he ministers to them is the baptism of Jesus and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That is to say, they didn't recognize the word of Christ. They didn't know that the Messiah had indeed come as John was anticipating. And so he prays for them and he prays for them to receive the Holy Spirit. I was, I was very perplexed by this, but also intrigued. And I don't know if it's 
quite clear or not, but interestingly, at the city of Ephesus, Paul prays for 12 people to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And I just think that's interesting. And what I would take from that is a question, is not the Lord doing something in Ephesus to say that it's not just for the apostles, it's for the entire church? And if it continued on into the day of Ephesus, it continues on to the day of Dayton. So, Jesus Christ gives the Spirit to the people at Ephesus, but notice this. Paul then writes a letter asking that the Father would give them the Spirit. Wait a second, Paul. They've already received the Spirit. You yourself were there, was there. You were there when they received the Spirit. And yet you're writing that the Father might grant them the gift of the Spirit? What this tells us, I believe, is that the, the Spirit is given completely and yet our experience of him is limited. It is lacking. Uh, as so many times uh, my father mentions, we leak. And it's a right doctrine to understand that we, from the New Testament, we're told, do not grieve the Spirit, do not quench the Spirit, by which we understand it's possible to do those things because we're told not to do them. And so we need to understand the Spirit is not a one-time gift. The Spirit must be received day by day. He has to be honored and exalted and worshiped as God and, and drawn to and, and relied upon. It is not enough to theoretically value the Spirit and not also pray to the Lord that the Spirit might work more and more in our lives. The Ephesians clearly had the Spirit because we know that the New Testament says no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. He writes a letter to the saints who are at Ephesus, and so therefore we know they have the Spirit in some measure. He's asking that they would have it in a greater sense. He's praying in verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you are called. And instantly, I would, I would say that that is a phrase which cannot be exhausted in the Christian human life. You cannot exhaust the knowledge of the hope to which you are called. Uh, one of the pastors that I love listening to, he puts his sermons online. He is described as he is aging now. He's into his late 70s. I think he might even have turned 80 by now. He says, one of the things that has impressed upon me the most as I've gotten older is the knowledge that the ticker tape or the, the finishing line is so much more clear and I can already begin to appreciate that first sight of the Lord Jesus that I will receive. That's the hope to which you are called. But it's not just otherworldly. It's not just at the end of our lives are we rewarded. We also allow Christ's victory by the Spirit to begin today. It is inaugurated and it will be consummated. It is beginning and it has a definite wonderful end. Verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his might? Immeasurable power. Mathematicians have this concept of infinity. And one of the things that is interesting is within the things that are infinite, there are different categories of infinity. And what I would say here is that this idea, the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward those who believe is beyond comprehension. It cannot be exhausted. The power of God in working grace towards those who believe is beyond what you can apprehend or comprehend. The Spirit sent after the ascension, therefore, opens our eyes to the greatness of our calling. Do you ever have dreams of doing great things in God? God can do way better than you've ever imagined do you want to defeat sin and yet your experience is not comparing with what you hope to be given to you in Christ? The Holy Spirit is extremely powerful. It is immeasurably powerful. He is immeasurably powerful toward you. God has not only delivered from sin and destruction, he's not only transformed us into new creations, but he also grants powerful victory over sin. Yes, we will never be fully sanctified until we see the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet we must never abide a doctrine which tolerates ongoing sin. The reason that Christ came was to destroy the works of the devil. 
And the reason the Spirit is given in 1 John, he says, I'm writing to you because you've overcome the world. He says there's an anointing in you which teaches you all things. And he doesn't mean all points of information, but all things that are necessary for life and godliness. That is what the Spirit comes to do. He comes to enlighten us and to give us power, and not just to defeat sin, but also specifically to defeat the sin of the fear of man. He comes, as Jesus says, to empower the disciples to be witnesses. And if the Holy Spirit does that for the disciples of that first generation, he does that also for today. This is the very same power that he accomplished in the resurrection. That, that is to say that Paul, as he's writing to the Romans, says that the Spirit is the, the one by whom God raised Jesus from the dead, and that same Spirit now has taken up life in you. This has been a powerful meditation for me this Easter season as I've dwelled on and and intentionally meditated upon the fact of I live in a world where a man has come back to life and he came back to life by the Holy Spirit and that man is my Lord and Savior and by faith, by the power of the Spirit, his resurrection is happening in me. That's what I believe the Holy Spirit wants to do for his people. By that, I do not mean I am Superman. I I am not taking physical risks, but rather I'm saying that the Holy Spirit comes to empower bold risks for Jesus Christ. The sort of bold risks that lay down one's life. The sort of risks that tolerate it when people don't love you back. Or when you say nice things or present the gospel, you receive only hatred. Those are the impossible things. Sustaining love for your neighbor while receiving hate from your neighbor is the impossible thing that the Holy Spirit wants to enable in your life. Defeating sins which you deeply love and desire is what the Holy Spirit comes to do. James, our, our time in the book of James was very helpful for me personally. Again, just to share some of my heart in this matter because we often buy into a view of sin of I don't like doing that thing. And yet the the scriptures tell us plainly that we're only enticed by our lusts. We're not enticed by things we find despicable. I've never been tempted to jump off of a bridge because I'm deeply, by nature, afraid of heights. Now, some people have been tempted by that. I'm not diminishing that temptation. What I'm saying is I'm tempted by things I want. And you are tempted by things you want. So defeating sin is impossible for you unless there is one outside of you who is God himself, the Holy Spirit, who can transform you into not liking that thing. And while you still like it, by faith, trusting in the promises and prohibitions of God to kill that sin. Paul says to kill what is earthly in you by the Spirit. So this is what the Holy Spirit is given to do. He's given to cause us to be witnesses to the resurrection. And by giving that example of my meditations this Easter, what I am trying to say is that being witnesses to the resurrection does not mean I can tolerate sin but preach the gospel or evangelize. Being a witness to the resurrection means to, in every circumstance, bring the fact, the historic fact of the resurrection to bear in the current moment. I'm talking with somebody, he's not receiving me. I can stand there by the grace of God because Christ was raised from the dead. And the Holy Spirit is he who enables that sort of love for one's neighbor. That is what it means to, in a sense, lay one's life down. We must never truncate witnessing the resurrection or being a martyr for the Lord only to physical death in some physical form of persecution, we must understand the resurrection speaks to all of life and the resurrection is communicated to us by the Spirit. The Ephesians and therefore all believers must live by the Holy Spirit, drawing upon the strength which he supplies. This has become a deeply wonderful verse for me. 1 Peter 4.11, let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies so that he would be glorified in everything. It is important that we learn how to do that. We do it by faith. We stand upon his promises, we call them to mind, and we put to death what's earthly in us, and we act by faith. So knowing that the spirit who raised Christ from the dead resides with me, delivers me from a thousand temptations to fear and to despair. Does anything in your life seem hopeless? Praise the Lord. God is the God who raises the dead. 
That is what the pinnacle, or the, rather the foundation of our faith is. The Hebrew writer says that Abraham considered when he was told to slay Isaac, his son, the son of promise. He said, he, the Hebrew writer said, Abraham thought he came to the idea that God is the God who raises the dead. And then we're told in the New Testament to imitate the faith of Abraham. We're also told, ladies, you're told to imitate the faith of Sarah. That's, that's what we're supposed to be doing. And so this is what it means to appreciate the Holy Spirit's work. Appreciating the Holy Spirit's work does not mean thinking right things about the Spirit alone, but also that a willingness to live according to the Spirit and to invite the Spirit into your daily life. Paul's prayer, therefore, demonstrates this fact that the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ are not simply historical fact, but are the foundational realities for everything in the Christian faith. The resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ are deeply important to how we think about our lives. Being united to Jesus Christ, his resurrection and his ascension become the ground of all of my hope for victory over sin today and all of my hope for life after death on that final day. That is what I believe the ascension is supposed to do for us in commemorating and understanding what Jesus Christ did on our behalf. Verse 20, Paul is asking that they would have a knowledge of the Spirit's power, which God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That seating was done such that Christ is now far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age also to come. It's a very interesting thing when you think about far above every name that which is named. This is deeply applicable in our culture. We have names that are named in our culture by which men attempt to be saved. You can think of any particular self-help religion. For example, the common cultural one is Oprah. I'm going to turn my life around. I'm going to start reading this self-help book. Uh, another one is Dr. Phil, right? I'm going to clean up my life. What we do with these men who, men or women who teach doctrines who promise salvation through self-repair is we elevate them into names. Oh, are you a follower of that school? We do this in the theological circles all the time. Sometimes it's very deeply flawed. In fact, Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians disciplining them for that sin. Some claim to be of Paul. Some claim to be of Apollos. Some claim to be of Jesus. He says, you're all guilty because you're exalting names and you're doing it in a factious way. But this is what our hearts long love to do in our culture. We love to prop up men and doctrine by which we are supposed to be saved. But the only doctrine which is causing us to be saved, which can cause us to be saved, is that God has sent Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for sinners. Not for those who can clean themselves up. So any name that is named, whether it be Caesar or Trump, to bring it home, any name that is named, whether it be Oprah, whether it be Jordan Peterson, he's, he's the current ascending star, any name which is named Freud, Washington, Lincoln, none of those names matter. The name that matters, Jesus Christ. That is what Paul is saying. He has been exalted far above every form of name. This is not just sweetly precious for those who love to make idols out of their fellow man. It is also deeply precious for those who are being persecuted by their fellow man. Do you think Mohammed matters? He doesn't matter. Is he, by his followers, oppressing the Christians all over the earth? Yes, he is. But his name is not over the name of Jesus Christ. You see, the sword of, of God's word turns both ways against both idolatry and persecution here because Jesus has that name. And for us as disciples of Jesus Christ, we must know that he is the reigning king over all. There is nothing over him. And therefore, because we are united to him, 
by faith as he is our head and we are his body, there can be nothing over us. And that is exactly what Paul does. His, accent, his ascension inaugurates or begins his present reign by which he rules over all the nations, over all na- names, and he moves forward time to God's intended purpose. That is to say, Jesus Christ is currently moving in the nations. He's currently reigning over things and working by his spirit in his church to bring about God's complete purpose for time and history. That is the glorification of his grace through the gospel. That's what Paul says that they have been given in this passage. We were predestined in Ephesians 1 verse 5 for adoption, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. That God would be glorified through all things, that his grace would be seen. So, In his session, in Jesus seating at the right hand, he not only reigns with power, but he thanks the Father for the saints and he petitions him for their good. And therefore, as Christ is seated, he reigns over all things, whether they be angels or demons, nations or empires, kings or princes. Are you tormented in soul? Christ reigns over all spirits. Are you tormented by a political faction? He is king of kings. Lord of lords, and no one does anything that escapes his eye. That is who our king is. Though his reign is not limited to things in the church, his reign is expressed as his headship for the church. Let me say that again, because it's very common for people to say, well, Jesus does reign, but he reigns over the church. He clearly does not reign over the nations of men. But I want to assert very strongly the New Testament teaches that he is king of kings, whether they be Christian kings or not. He's not a president. (laughs) It's hard for us as Americans. We didn't elect the Lord Jesus Christ, and we can't kick him out after his term's over. (laughs) He's king of kings, and he will take his step off of that throne when he comes to consummate the kingdom. His headship is for the church, but he is reigning over all things. Verse 22, he put, God put all things under Christ's feet and gave Christ as head over all things to the church. You see, he put all things under his feet, not in the church. He did not put all things in the church under the Lord Jesus' feet. And don't miss this part. He put him as head over all things to the church. He gave him for that purpose. The father set apart the son not only to die for sin and defeat death and ascend, he also gave him for the purpose of reigning on their behalf. And so that they would have great confidence that their mediator is also their Lord. Verse 23, his body is the church, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's a very interesting thing, but the subjection of Christ's enemies under his feet is thorough and it is complete, though it is not fully realized. What do I mean by that? ISIS is running around on this earth contrary to the ultimate will of Christ. Okay? Many things. You can fill out any particular cultural issue. His victory over them is complete. God has put Jesus over everything. Everything is under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, that victory, that subjugation of all things contrary to Christ, that victory is not fully realized. And if you're looking for an analogy, I think the Lord Jesus would say it's kind of like making a loaf of dough and putting a little bit of yeast in the dough. The dough is leavened. It will become a loaf of bread, but it's not fully done. That's one of the parables that he used, isn't it? He, he said that the kingdom of God is like a lump of dough which a woman has put leaven into and it is expanding, it is maturing. It takes time, but I've learned this, you cannot unleaven dough. You can't take apart the dough and find all the yeast and hunt it down. The only way that you can stop leavening from working is if you have full control over the dough and want to throw it away. But in that parable, the dough is history, and Jesus is clearly the Lord of history. We cannot stop the leavening process. 
it will complete, it will be full. So his victory over all things as head is being proclaimed by his body, the church, through the gospel by which they conquer. Romans 16, 20, Paul, Paul says to the Roman church as he's closing his letter, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Not Christ's feet, under your feet. Why? Because you are united to Christ as head and body. Revelation 12, 11 says that they overcome, overcame the dragon by the word of, the, uh, the word of Christ, the testimony of Christ, and the word of their testimony. That is to say, the blood of Christ and the word of their testimony are the means by which they overcome the dragon. Do they get killed by the dragon in Revelation 12? Yes. Do they overcome the dragon? Yes. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing through his people. So, as we celebrate the ascension and reign of Christ today, let us all the more long for the Spirit's presence because it is the Spirit alone who can cause life to come about in our lives. Let us appreciate his presence in our lives as we approach Pentecost, which we will celebrate next week, for the Spirit is the agent of Christ's reign in us. This is why we must not grieve the Spirit or quench the Spirit. It is a wonderful, gracious gift from heaven to us here who reside upon the earth and are in Christ that the Spirit would reign in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his victorious ascent. Having completed the work that, he, that you sent him to do, he now reigns upon the throne at your right hand. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are reigning on our behalf, that you are head of the church, that you are the one who is bringing about God's intended will in the nations. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that nothing that takes place with your people ever escapes your eye. Lord, we ask that you would all the more grant us the Holy Spirit. We recognize our need for him, and we ask, Lord, that you would help us to never quench him, that we would learn what is pleasing to you and that we would do what is pleasing to you and that your spirit would have free reign in our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would bring about a deep reformation, not just of who we are individually, but in our church of our appreciation for and and love for the work of your spirit. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.